0: Activist theology is built on the power of story, and we believe story can change the world.
1: We also know that being in community with one another on this journey will help to build a movement committed to collective liberation and a more loving world.
0: We have a commitment to the ethics and politics of Encajunto or togetherness, and we are together in this work with you. Hi, folks. This is Dr. Robin.
1: Hi, y'all. This is Reverend Anna Galladay. And we are your hosts for the Activist Theology Podcast. It's time for us to get our hands dirty. We're ready. Are you? Hey, Pastor. Well, hi there, Dr. Robin. How are you?
0: Well, it's been a week here. It snowed on Monday, and um, that's a little bit too cold for my bones. (laughs)
1: your Texas blood doesn't, uh, doesn't invite the snow.
0: No, no. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not a fan of cold weather at all.
1: Yeah. And I'm, I'm the opposite from a precipitation standpoint. I love winter precipitation. I love frost. I love sleet. I love snow. I really, really love snow. Um, but I don't like just plain old bitter cold days. Mm -hmm. Like I I want, if 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 I'm going to be immersed in cold weather, I want there to be a winter wonderland around me Ah, in the middle of it. So yeah, I um, it snowed here too, which is rare for Chattanooga. It didn't stick to the ground, of course, but yeah, just to look out my window and see flurries made my made my Virginia born heart very very happy. (laughs) <laughs> well, I will say
0: there's a beauty to the first snow of a season, right? Like the, to get to participate in the transition of a season, there is something remarkable about that. Um, but I just don't want to be out in it. And, you know, I've, I've had to crank up the heat to 72 and I'm wearing a fleece and long pants and my house shoes and, you know, this
1: is <laughs> down, downright cold. I know you're, you're living your best, uh, grand, grandpa fantasy right now. Yep. 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 (laughs) I sure am. I, uh, I of course have not gotten a break from taking my, my amazing Ruthie Bader to the dog park. And so it's been a couple of cold days standing out there watching her live her best life, but um, it's, it's worth it. It's been fun to, to watch the seasons change and to experience it. And, um, I, uh you know, how how lucky and blessed we are that we have the privilege to have a house where heat can be turned up and yeah. that we are homed in structures that um, keep us warm. And I feel especially uh, tender for my friends on the streets right now whose homes yeah. are um, not like ours, yeah. um, are just as full of life and joy, but are not like ours and how they're transitioning into this winter weather makes my heart very tender
0: yeah I mean it's one of the things I'm thinking about which is you know we're living in a global pandemic and normally I would be out on the streets with open table Nashville canvassing and normally I drive the van um to transport people to shelters right and you know I'm really in that place of not knowing you know how do I do what I normally would do you know like It's not safe, but these people still need to get to, to shelter. So how do I contribute to, to that? And it's been hard to sit with, um, possibly not helping out this winter and staying at home, just like, just like we did for Thanksgiving. It was just, you know, me and Aaron for Thanksgiving and, uh, I, so my heart is really heavy about the the ways in which I'm not going to be able to help out the the communities that that I, that I really want to help, which is the homeless community.
1: Right. You know, I um, as as our listeners know, I uh, suffered from COVID in the early part of November, and um, one of the things that that has done for my partner and I is that we have been. Um, able to be out in the world a little more than we were before, because um, our doctors have suggested that we are likely, or we have antibodies in our system, at least for the first three months after our recovery. And so I, I made a point to head down to our shelter over the weekend and I I want to you know I because of the antibodies built up in me I I'm able to do a little bit more at least right now
2: mm-hmm.
1: and and not be fearful for that so I'm trying to to be mindful of the ways that I I unlike many 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 others am not able to are not able to be in the in the world and and I am so I'm right. trying to get creative on how I can. Um, help help with that. We are also um, signed up to donate our plasma next week. Oh, um, There's a large need for plasma that has uh, antibo- COVID antibodies um, in it. And because we are both um, very, very lucky survivors of the uh, virus, we are going to be donating our plasma next week here oh, wow. at the blood bank in Chattanooga. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's great. It's great. It, it's, it's a little scary, but um, you know, plasma is not like giving blood because right. you know, giving blood, they take it out and you, you go home. Plasma, they take it out, they wash it, they put it back in you. And so it's a little, it's a little weirder yeah. from a, from a bodily standpoint, but yeah. I'm, I'm real. I'm just, I feel very um, humbled that I'm able to to do that for Um, you know, for our healthcare system right now. And it's, it is a little, little thing, but um, if that's the thing that I can do, you know, having, having survived it, then I'm, I'm all in just, you know, sign me up. So. That's so cool. Well, we are really lucky today um, in that we have um, a guest with us on the show that is going to help us frame the time that we find ourselves in from um, a deep theological lens. Um, we are welcoming Dr. Ruben Rosario Rodriguez, um, who is a professor of theological studies at St. Louis University um, in the Midwest. And I know that you and Ruben have a a long relationship, and um, I'm really excited that he is going to help us share in this in this work of breaking down these times. Ruben, welcome to the Activist Theology podcast.
2: It's great to be here. Uh, Good to meet you, Anna. Great to hear your voice again, Robin.
1: Yeah, thanks so
0: much for being here.
2: How's it going in St. Louis? Twenty-three degrees Fahrenheit this morning. You were talking mm. about the cold. It's yeah. cold. <laughs> yeah. yeah,
1: it is. It is cold.
2: Yeah, we, we had some flurries on Monday, but but no, nothing stuck.
1: Well, Ribbon, why don't you give our listeners um, a little broader of an understanding of who you are and um, how you come at this work, and um, and and just let
2: folks know um, a little bit about yourself. Great. Yes, um, I am a minister of Word and Sacrament, or what the Presbyterian Church now calls a teaching elder. Um, I will be celebrating. 25 years of ordination on December 17th um, and spent three years as a hospital chaplain before returning to do doctoral work in systematic theology. But my work as a liberationist has always bridged uh, ethics, theology, uh, social sciences. And uh, my primary work has been uh, kind of the intersection of, of race Um, political theology, and emancipatory struggles, right? Um, And I found myself uh, as a Presbyterian Reformed theologian uh, teaching uh, theology at a Jesuit Catholic university. In 2004, when I began here, I began working with primarily Catholic students coming from Catholic college prep schools with a very strong foundation in Catholic theology. And I was viewed with suspicion as the Presbyterian pastor in their midst. Mm. But that was a long time ago. It is now 2020. St. Louis University has changed drastically in those 16, 17 years. uh, So much so that the majority of our students are now non-Christian, that we have a large international population from uh, South Asia, from the Middle East, and from China, and so now it is more common that uh, my Intro to Theology students, which is a required course that every undergraduate at St. Louis University, which we call SLU, so if you hear me say SLU, that's what I'm talking about. uh, Every undergraduate student has to take this Theological Foundations course, and now um, my average student, rather than coming from a, a religious education, Catholic catechism background, Usually is either uh, another religion, mostly uh, uh, Islam, or no religion at all, which has proven to be uh, interesting. It's been a great, great. How uh, uh, should I put it? Catalyst for innovation as, yeah. as a teacher. And so what I find is I, I begin the semester sharing some of my own experience, and I'm really a, a firm believer in autobiography as a source for theological reflection and knowledge of God. And um, I find that if if I accomplish anything, and and this is to get to the point of of where we are with this global pandemic, is if if I can get students to reflect on where God is in the midst of their day-to-day experience, then I've accomplished something. And so um, I start the semester with uh, a little exercise called um, uh, Six Word Story or, or the uh, Flash Fiction. And it was this uh, story narrative. Uh, I don't know how factual it is, but that Hemingway challenged a group of his friends that he could write a short story in six words, which he then did. And, and uh, I, I believe the short story was something like for sale um, baby shoes um, slightly used or something to that effect. And, and and the idea was that it was this very um, filled with story filled with pathos and six words about, you know, why would you sell a slightly used pair of shoes? The implication being that the baby has passed away, has died, no longer needs them. So um, it, it – It gets them going, it gets them thinking, and then I share, um, this is a contest that NPR has every year, and so celebrities submit their famous flash fiction six-word short stories, I share mine, and then everyone, it breaks down the ice, but everyone spends time in class that first day writing and sharing their own six-word story. Um, All of this culminates after a semester of working together through certain theological texts. And this year, we looked at uh, A Lens of Love by Jonathan Walton. We looked at Why Religion by Elaine Pagels. We looked at The Mm -hmm. Cross and the Lynching Tree by Jim Cohn, who, by the way, was my first teacher of theology way back in 1992.
1: Mm -hmm. What a gift.
2: Yes, definitely. We read Elie Wiesel's Night, and we read... um, Jason Michelli's Cancer is Funny. Jason is a former student of mine, a Methodist pastor, and it's a a book about his very personal struggle with terminal cancer, and it is a a rich and deep theological text. And so uh, the theme of theology as autobiography is woven through the semester. And I remind them, this isn't catechism class. We're here to ask questions and to challenge one another, and, and, and really see where our thoughts and experiences take us. And then I begin with a text that, for me, I come from a Reformed Presbyterian background, has really been the, the framework for all of my theological reflection, and it's the opening words to John Calvin's Institutes, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and of ourselves. Um, in other words, we can't know God without knowing who we are as human beings. We can't know what it fully means to be a human being without encountering transcendence and divinity. And so that, in a nutshell, is how I've helped these students cope with, with what has been a very emotionally draining semester, one filled with isolation, depression, um, one in which these are kids who are for the first time away from home, we did do face-to-face instruction this semester. They were living in the dorms, but under very strict, almost ascetic rules. Mm. And and as the semester wore on, it got harder and harder for these young men and women to um, follow the strict social distancing guidelines to limit themselves to to interacting in the dorm with their roommate and and groups of six or less um, in in wide open spaces. Uh, and, and eventually, after fall break, we're, during the semester, we hadn't had any incidents of COVID on campus. They had all been commuter students. After fall break, um, many of them went home, even though they had been told and advised not to. Long story short, we doubled the rate. We were up from under 1% to 2%. Um, and it looked like things were beginning to, to escalate that we might not make it to the end of the semester. And unfortunately or fortunately, I'm not sure which, the administration kind of put the onus on us as faculty members to try to communicate to our students the importance of, you know, we, if we're gonna make this work, we need to, you know. And I felt given the nature of the course I'm teaching, given the nature of my very intimate interaction with these students, I broke down and I said, look, let me lay it out for you. My son is a cancer survivor. He has been almost in total quarantine since this began. Um, He's 12 years old. It's driving him crazy. But because of the long-term side effects of chemotherapy, which has done permanent damage to his lungs and his heart, he is at the highest risk category for death with this coronavirus. And so, therefore... I I have to take very serious precautions. I debated long and hard whether I should even teach face to face. Mm -hmm. I had a very good reason not to do that. But because I trusted the safety precautions that the school implemented, and I'm trusting each and every one of you, um, you know, I I felt like I could commit to to being here for my students, uh, even though it posed a risk for my son. You know, that being said, Um, if it looks like the student body is not going to continue this very difficult um, ascetic ritual, which is, you know, for the sake of others, wear masks, wash your hands, avoid, you know, large gatherings, um, I'm going to have to move instruction fully online. And, And at least in my class, the students responded. As an institution, we managed to not go above 2%. So, so somehow we, we, we must have communicated to our students and made it to the end of the semester. But it was um, trying, to say the least. Yeah. I think the biggest issue faced was that of, of isolation and loneliness. And so we made it a almost a, a, a discipline to, to then reflect on where is God in the midst of this? Mm. And so the way I did it was I, I used the old Wesleyan quadrilateral, right? We have yes. scripture, tradition, reason. And those are the ones we talk about most in theology class. But then I said, let's talk about experience. Where have yes. you found God in the midst of this crisis? And, and think about 20 years from now, right? If we, if we have a time capsule, we create a time capsule. And what are the things that, that you want people to remember 20 years from now? about this crisis. And, you know, and it just allowed. And, you know, it it was an interesting dialogue, because about a third of the class was fully online the whole time. And so even though I was in a classroom, I had to have Zoom set up, I had to have a big screen projecting the class that was the part of the class that was on Zoom. And then every other day, only half the class was there in person. So in the end, two thirds of the class was always online. One third of the class was in person with me in this room. And so it was uh, challenging in the best of, of circumstances. Um, and it rarely was that. Ultimately, technology would falter, much like, like the experience we had on Monday. You, can, yeah. you can't rely on technology sometimes. And, and But yet somehow we got through it. And as I said, the, the key was... Let's focus on what does. How do we know and experience the divine? Now, what what's strange about that is is that for, for most of those kids, they, they had no upbringing in any kind of religious tradition. They've never talked and reflected on God, right? And and so that's why I chose the texts I chose, especially Elaine Pagel's book, Why Religion. Someone who in, in most. Ways her career has been a, a kind of a skeptical, uh, critical look at the Christian tradition. Um, and yet in the end, even though she approached things very scientifically and objectively, could not dismiss faith. She might not be a traditional Christian, but but for her, religion is an important part of what it means to be human. Mm-hmm. And so that resonated with students. Ily Visel's experience... Uh, almost coming to a, a complete loss of faith in 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 a uh, concentration camp, um, and so we read Knight, but then we we then read his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, where clearly he'd made his peace with with the anger he had at God uh, in his youth and embraced his Jewish faith, um, even if it wasn't an orthodox and traditional Jewish faith, and so it was helpful for them to see that the story didn't end with the loss of faith in night, but continued that journey.
1: I love that you used and you, and you bring up those two readings, you know, because especially during the time that we're in right now, both of those pieces of work um, resonate around this concept of loss of terrible loss and Pagel's, you know, book, says very clearly that no one escapes terrible loss. Um, and you know, Elie Wiesel is um, you know, is writing about just the expansiveness of the 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 death and and damage done during the days that he was living. And 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 your students are in um, in many ways experiencing their own level of radical loss yes. during these times, and so as it relates to God and theological undergirding, so it also relates to loss. And so I really I love that I love that those are those are anchor points for you,
2: and and it became concrete for some folks, uh, people who did have. Bosses in their family due to COVID. And uh, sure. we had two students who, who had to be um, quarantined and had to leave the class physically and, and finish the semester online because of COVID. Um, so uh, there was the loss there, the loss of, of their first year in college, really, you know? Right. Uh, having to go home uh, near the end of it, early. Um I, I intentionally did that. That's why I also used Jason Michelli's book and, um, as a way then of looking at how faith and religion then gives us coping mechanisms for dealing with loss. And sometimes they're very traditional, uh, whether it's sacraments or liturgy. But other times it's just the freedom to be angry at God and, and, and shout back at God. In your prayer life, right?
1: The church that Jason served um, is about a quarter of a mile as the crow flies from my sister's home mm-hmm. in Annandale, Virginia. That's I,
2: actually I, I know that neighborhood because my wife grew up on Ravensworth Road. So oh yeah, yeah of course. Too? Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, but it's you know, and I and I am a pastor in the United Methodist faith as well, and and so I've known Jason off and on for. Um, for several years but i um yeah i'm what it's it's a really interesting collection that you're using with that course and i i think that it's i think it gives a really beautiful um kind of undergirding for these first-year students many of whom have no idea what, they, what they're what they going to get themselves into when they realize that they're required to take an intro to theology exactly. course yeah. as, a, as a freshman in, in undergrad. and
2: undergrad. And using Walton and Cohn was also a very intentional piece because sure. one of the dimensions of experience that I want that the students to be aware of is the fact that you are on an urban campus in a racially divided city that has been rocked for, for many years since the Michael Brown uh, murder yeah. uh, with, with racial violence and division. And, and so much so that those protests came and moved onto our campus. And so one of the things I did was kind of situate for them, give them the history, I played video footage of what was called the Occupy Slough movement, which was um, uh, during the height of the Ferguson Uprising, Um, A group of students um, brought the protest onto the campus and wanted to hold the university accountable for what it was doing in light of its commitment to to the Jesuit Catholic commitment to social justice, what they were going to do as leaders in the community to, to struggle in solidarity with the African American community and to provide leadership in that instance. And it was quite a moment. It was called Occupy Slu, and it was the first crisis the newly uh, hired president, who was the first lay president in the history of St. Louis University, uh, Fred Postello, had to deal with. And to his credit, he handled it with grace, with wisdom. The first call he got was a call from campus security that uh, at least 1,000 protesters were trying to come onto the campus, should he stop them? Should he allow it? And and to uh, Postello's credit, he allowed them onto the campus and then came and let, met with them, listened to them. Long story short, they occupied our campus for a week. At the end of it, uh, the the university made a series of commitments to the African-American community here in St. Louis. And to this date, our university's mission is being guided by uh, the priority of, of diversity, um, uh, inclusion, and, and equity. And I am part of the task force that is working to make sure these commitments get implemented. But I wanted a national issue, the, the, the George Floyd incident over the summer and all the protests everyone was seeing in the midst of this pandemic, I wanted them to then realize their own direct link and connection to those struggles and our university's commitment to those struggles. And so we read both Jonathan Walton's text and Jim's Cohn's, the, the cross and the lynching tree, and, um, as well as some other readings, shorter readings from MLK and from X but it was, uh, yeah. um, challenging. Uh, we, despite all our efforts are still a predominantly white upper middle class, uh, student population, and most of our students come from rural Missouri. If you know anything about the the last presidential election and and demographics of this state, 58% of Missouri voters voted for Trump. And, um, there is always a lot of resistance and tension, primarily among white males when certain issues are raised and discussed in my class. And so, um, That's why I always share with them, again, part of my understanding of theology is autobiography. I share with them my first day of class in Jim Cohn's Intro to Theology course, where he tells us that the task of theology is to say yes to some things and no to others. And then he proceeds to tell us that the theologian is is not an academic in an ivory tower, but as a fellow pilgrim on the journey of faith with the community. And then this is his clincher. And then most important point, always accountable to the community, mm. right? And so once we set that stage um, and recognize that, then, uh, yeah, if people are going to tune, tune out what we're t- trying to address, they're going to tune out. But uh, I want to make sure that they understand that, that, this isn't a bandwagon. This is at, at the core of how I understand and do theology. And, and, and I and argue uh, that is how Christ modeled theology, one which is very much grounded in people's daily existence and uh, listening to, to the, the plight of people in the midst of their suffering is, is a big part of knowing where God is and who God is in the midst of all that.
0: Well, this is precisely why I wanted to invite you on. And if you remember, I reached out to you early in the pandemic to yes. see if you would come on to the podcast. But everything was shifting. Everything was going online. And, and you know, you wrote back and you were very gracious and you were like, give me some time. But, <laughs> you know, here, you know, at the Activist Theology Project, we use things like lo cotodiano, and lived reality lived experience and storytelling as a way to do theology and we we use this podcast as a way to invite people to get their hands dirty to to not just be seers in the world but to be doers in the world yeah and so i feel really curious about you know a, as a theologian what is the the theological in this moment what what are we bearing witness to? Also, we we have just entered the the liturgical season of Advent, so there is more waiting That's for right. the Christmas season. Um, so I feel very curious, uh, you know, to what you would say about what is the theological in this season of the pandemic that we're
2: in. Well, part of it is is uh, learning to live with the void where we think God ought to be. And and the fact that, that it's, it's like uh, Christ cry from the cross and, and quoting Psalm 22, right? Why have you abandoned me? Um, and and so one of the things that, that I think um, part of what I do in theology is kind of deconstruct with, with my intro students, deconstruct our, our preconceptions of what God is, who God is, and then help them, give them the tools to kind of rebuild. Um, and, and there's a, a quote in Jason's book, persisting with God even when you don't feel God is the exact definition of faith. And, and so one of the things um, I try to encourage is then a, a critical retrieval of discipline, of mm-hmm. things like daily prayer, or in, in the case of this class, a, they kept a daily journal critical reading log. No one read it, but them and myself, and they trusted me. And then that was a huge leap. And it took a while. The first few entries were always awkward or very sparse, and they didn't really go into any detail. Um, but I wrote I wrote comments on everyone, and I responded back. And um, Basically said, you know, I really liked when you when you took your reflection in this direction or really like what you had to say here. And and over the course of the semester, um, this daily log became a, a discipline, became a prayer, became. And then out of that, once a week, they were required to post something they felt comfortable sharing in public from that journal. They could edit it and refine it as any way they wanted. But they had to, once a week, on this blog that we had, share one of their kind of theological reflections. No more than 250 words, you know, paragraph. Um, And the idea is that then everyone would read. And I required that everyone read and respond to at least two classmates' weekly blog posts. And so in the end, what happened was a real conversation started happening and they more than exceeded the two comments and they read everyone's brief entries and, and it created what we couldn't recreate in the classroom, which was a dialogue. It did that virtually through this weekly blog, which grew out of this discipline of writing a daily journal, which was mm-hmm. meant to be a, a, a space where they took the material in our readings in our lectures, and, and then responded, critiqued, analyzed, got creative. I, I, one young woman scanned her journal because she kept it by hand, and she was an artist and drew some – I mean, it was amazing. It's a work of art. and um, Wow. Uh, it really became – and again, most of that is private, personal, and I've been privileged to, to, to see it, but most of that no one else in the class saw. But when they chose to share something in the class, it usually was very rich, and um, allowed us then to to recognize that all of us are struggling with faith. All of us are struggling with where is God in the midst of this? That feeling of abandonment, and that one of the answers to how to deal with that void is is religion. It's not for everyone, but but. One of the things religion does is it creates a discipline. It creates a pattern. There is something to be said for repetition. And and uh, one of my professors at, at Princeton, at Diogenes Allen, uh, who is a philosopher, um, really did view um, religious disciplines as simply a way of preparing ourselves, especially when we feel God isn't there, we can't feel God, to be receptive to God's action in the world when it does in fact happen and, and learning to recognize what God's action is. And so one of the ways that, that, again, because I'm at a Jesuit Catholic university, one of the ways I did that was by linking this um, commitment to, because all the students were required to sign this commitment to wearing masks, to washing hands, to, uh, following social distancing, avoiding public gatherings, etc linking that to the Catholic social teaching tradition and, and, and then linking that to the Jesus we encountered in the Sermon on the Mount and the idea that, that we don't wear the mask for our own sake or for our own good, but we do it out of a self-giving love for the sake of others, and in particular, those who are more vulnerable, mm. right? And so I, I basically found that, that my job was simply to help them connect dots, But often that grew organically out of what they were willing to share in this blog. I love that. It worked. It was an experiment. I was trying to find ways of recreating what I do in the classroom. In the classroom, a class this size, keep in mind this was a class of 30 students. Um, Mm -hmm. And a class this size, I would normally break it down into uh, groups of five. And we would do these different exercises, like the six-word six short story on the first day of classes in these small groups of five. And then before the end of class, every group would then share and report to the rest of the class. But, but in the end, um, over the course of the semester, I rotate who belongs in what group so that everyone gets to know everybody else and, and building, creating community. It's very intentional. It requires a lot of planning. Um, and, and a lot of that I could not do because of COVID. And the other piece I could not do because of COVID is that I always required a service learning component to my courses and uh, very intentionally work with our university's Office of Community Engagement to um, find community agencies that are worlds removed from their comfort zone, right? Mm-hmm. Um, places like the Crisis Nursery, which provides as the, the the name implies, crisis childcare for for low income and, and homeless families that uh, are just at their wits end and need to go to a job interview or need to uh, you know go meet with their social worker or or their parole officer and can't take their children with them and and they need a place to drop safe place to drop their kids. Um, so that's one place, uh, but there are others many. Uh, agencies like it here in town. And, and the idea is they have to stay with the same agency over the course of the whole semester and build trust and develop relationships and get to know people um, and, and recognize that the norm from so many people who are living uh, uh, through the cracks of our social support networks, the yeah. norm is so unsteady and crazy. And, 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 and so the idea being... That that at the end of it, um, I want them to have an appreciation um, for really the blessings that they have in their life that they never saw as such. You know.
0: You know, this is the thing that I think people miss about um, learning theology or thinking theological is that people think that it's this vertical transcendent relationship, Mm -hmm. but what you're really offering us is um, not only examining ourselves, but uh, examining our communities and in a, in a real lateral or horizontal uh, relationship with, with um, what is around us so that we are shaped you know, we, we are shaped by story, we're shaped by narrative, we are shaped by community. And you're really offering us um, a real live example of, of how people are experiencing that. And especially in a place like St. Louis that is riddled with the complexities of what we would call here the Activist Theology Project – a supremacy culture, yeah. so not just white supremacy, but economic supremacy, um, and other supremacies that undermine
2: the least of these, and even a Christian supremacy. You know, this is right, the absolutely, yes, yeah. the Bible belt. Yeah, absolutely, and and it's something that uh, I very intentionally uh, weave. Is is again, we can't do it. We haven't been able to do it because of COVID, but intentionally working in other faith communities as well, working with, um, uh, you know, uh, the Jewish Community Center here in town has a a very good program that explores uh, the history of of race relations in St. Louis. And um, they do a lot of work in schools and with with local high school kids. And uh, they really open students' eyes to, to the history of, of East St. Louis, for example, that everyone's familiar with, with the Tulsa riots and, and what happened there, but the same thing happened in East St. Louis, right? And, and here in St. Louis, it's not part of the history books and needs to be right. a part of that. right? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been challenging to keep the same level of engagement because we haven't been able to leave the virtual classroom, really, um, I, I began the semester by requesting that our Office of Community Engagement come up with some guidelines for allowing students to do immersion and, and service learning in the community. and I think the University Council just thought it was too high a risk um, mm. and so that move never made. But if things continue in the spring, I might I might push a little harder. Um, because that's that's always been such an invaluable piece of that first year experience for our, our first year students, the, the sure. service learning component of this required course that every student has to take. Sure.
1: So I I have um you may um know uh, Sam Benmire who is a, a professor of world religions at Mercy College in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, they wrote a really, what I believe to be important piece um, back at the early onset of the pandemic uh, about theology and where we find ourselves. And there, there's a statement in the in the article that has stuck out to me, and that I've actually had kind of stuck on my monitor um, as a reminder to myself in these days. Um, So uh, Sam says that the pandemic highlights an inescapable function of all significant human action, namely that our actions always outrun our intentions and that everything that we do has consequences that we haven't anticipated or wanted or even imagined. And that's been true for many people during this pandemic, that their actions, the, the way that they have been, in the world or ignoring quarantine requests or ignoring mask mandates or not washing their hands as diligently as they should have, those actions are outrunning their intentions. Mm-hmm. And I think that if we're, if we can, if we think that our actions are not um, something that, 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 are related to our theology, then it's very easy for us to say that we're not responsible for everything that our actions might cause. Yes. but perhaps like nothing else, this pandemic has illustrated that the the burden of human action is a, a, a responsibility that we carry theologically within us.
2: Yeah,
1: and and I wonder if you are seeing or if you have any thoughts on kind of this understanding of theological um, re- reciprocity or, or the ways in which theology and our actions within that are, are guiding
2: are guiding these terms. Yeah. I, I like to, to think of it in terms of, of interconnectedness and, and that one uh. of the things I'm seeing is that Regardless of where you are on the, the spectrum of North American religious experience, not just Christianity, but being the predominant religion, um, whether you're on, on the more progressive side, on the more conservative or traditional side, what I've noticed is that all of us, most of us, assume a certain normativity of, of what it means to be a human being, as an autonomous agent. We've really bought into the myth of modernity, that we are yeah. self-made, that we are in control of all our actions, and that um, so long as we don't impede on anyone else's freedom, we're free to do whatever we want. Now, there are some 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 uh, valuable sources for emancipatory thinking, in that modern myth right but part of it is the fact that that it is indeed a myth that it is it can become like all myths a a totalizing narrative that can become exploitative and abusive and it does so politically at least in this kind of libertarian attitude that we've seen in in mass numbers regardless of, of religious commitment that this sense of you know don't tread on me right You're violating my freedoms, Um, when in fact we should be viewing it as um, this is a crisis. This is one in which, as you pointed out, um, our slightest actions can have repercussions we are not even aware of, and therefore it behooves us to then be um, empathetic and sensitive to the needs of those are most likely going to be harmed by our actions. And, and to, to do that, it, that's where I think religion and theology provides a framework to move beyond this notion of, of the autonomous self. I came to the Christian faith through... Uh, or at least embraced it as an adult through the existentialist philosophers. I, I did a, a senior thesis on Kierkegaard. I've done work on Nietzsche. I wrote my master's thesis on, on Kierkegaard. And I've also done work on Heidegger and Sartre and, and being a nothingness. and nothingness. And I remember an aha moment reading Jean-Paul Sartre's Being and Nothingness, where he, in effect, reduces human relationships to conflict. And it was reading that and then reading Martin Hoover's I and Thou that I realized what Sartre has done is, is valuable. He's given us an analysis of the modern world in which we've become these isolated bubbles and that we are in conflict with one another. But the point is that that's, that's not a full description of what it means to be human. That is a very narrow um, Modern view of of the hu- human beings as as these uh, autonomous agents, when in fact, Buber I think has has it more more accurate in, in his presentation, which is uh, that of of interrelationships between two subjects. Yes, well, uh,
1: yes, you know the activist theology project is uh, really. Girded by this understanding of relationality, and that we cannot do this work um, without one another, and nor nor should we ever attempt to do this work mm-hmm. uh, without one another, and. Ruben, I'm grateful that that you've spent your time with us today. I'm so thankful that you've offered this amazing theological perspective for our listeners, that you have um, given us a way to think about this interconnectedness in a way that um, keeps us responsible, um, but also maintains an an understanding of our relationship with the, the divine in a way that is accessible for each of us in whatever way that manifests itself. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you. Thank you for spending this time with us. Thank you for being a part of, of our conversation today. And we're we're really grateful to have you.
2: Thank you. It's great to meet you, Robin. It's great to hear you again. Um, did want to just oh, you. end with, with, wanted to share since I'm in the midst of grading final exams, um, I have to, to, that I'm going to enjoy reading. So uh, I wanted to share that one of the essay questions I thought both of you would appreciate. Uh, Feminist, biblical scholar, and theologian Phyllis Tribble calls these parts of the Bible the text of terror. There's a passage that I I shared with them. How do believers reconcile their belief that the Bible is a sacred text containing revelations from God with the troubling content of so much of the Bible? including passages that justify slavery, genocide, rape, domestic violence, and even child abuse. How do you read and interpret the text of terror found in the Bible? I think that gives you a sense of the relationship that built over the course of the semester and the kind of safe space I think all theologians ought to create to to kind of ask these questions, to kind of push back on tradition and to... um, Look for that which is revelatory, even in the midst of what Phyllis Tribble has called the text of terror. So um, I'm in the midst of reading these papers. I am thoroughly enjoying them. And uh, again, none of this could have been possible without students buying into the kind of community I tried to build. And, And so I'm so grateful for them.
0: I love that. And Ruben, you know, you have been such a wonderful colleague to me and um, friend and and guide really as, as you do the kind of work that you're doing. And I just want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I know that our listeners will um, – this will expand their imagination on theology and ethics. Oh. And I'm so
2: glad that you're the one that gets to do well, that thank for you. our listeners. Thank you, Robin. And I, I will say this, um, I, I might have been doing this for longer than you, but but you've reached a level of celebrity status I'll never get. So people always ask me if I know you, and it's like, yeah. So, <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, I, I, I'll be honest with you, and it's what I tell my friends. I, I don't do this for the celebrity fame. I no, do it of course not. I do it because our lives depend on it, um, which is why we started this podcast, and which is why I work with such a dedicated team to steward uh, better theology that will um, really do the kind of emancipatory work that I believe theology is designed to do. So um, it's about freedom. Um, for me and, and for all of us. So, and we'll be in touch. Thanks so much. Wonderful.
2: God bless you. Happy holidays to you both.
1: Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, friends, we are really grateful that you were with us today. We're glad that you have engaged with the Activist Theology podcast once again. Um, We want to make you aware of a uh, new or uh, different understanding that we have about our work. Um, We really want to engage with you. We want to engage with you as a fellow community member, as a member that is as interested in shifting culture and mindset and practice in a way that we can all feel and hear and experience the world and midwife hope and possibility for a more loving world of radical difference. As such, we are um, looking to um, build a donor base, a base that encourages us in a way that doesn't simply make us Recipients of your giving, but actually makes us engaged with you and the work that you want to see done in the world. If you're interested in being a part of this, if you'd like to pour into this community of work, we invite you to visit activisttheology.kindful.com, uh, where you can uh, give a gift that um, allows this to happen. Every donor during the month of December is going to be invited into this conversation with us. Uh, we want to have uh, conversations with you, not just about you, not just because you are giving of your of your uh, monetary donations, but because we really believe that this work can't be done Uh, in a silo, and this work can't be done without you. So please do consider how you might um, engage with the Activist Theology Project from a monetary way, and we will see you again next week. Dr. Robin, thanks for uh, being on this journey with me.
0: Yeah, it's time to get free, y'all.
1: Are you looking to connect the dots between what you think and how you live? Are you looking for a more robust way to be in solidarity with the movement?
0: Are you looking to get your hands dirty with the work of social justice? Join Dr. Robin and Reverend Anna Galladay each week as they share, reflect, and analyze on pressing social concerns.
1: Want to help support this podcast? Go to activisttheology.kindful.com and click on podcast. And remember... Activist and theology, share a tea.
0: The music you hear in this episode is Hands Dirty by our friends Delta Ray. Our sound editor and engineer is Dan Medley from 10 South Sounds.